Chapter 7, Nephrology, Topic 3, Electrolyte Disorders. Welcome to today's episode. In this session, we'll review electrolyte disorders, starting with hypernatremia. Hypernatremia is defined by a serum sodium concentration exceeding 145 millimoles per liter. It's a condition often encountered in clinical practice, and understanding its nuances is essential for effective patient care. Let's explore the causes, manifestations, diagnostics, management, and complications associated with hypernatremia. Starting with the causes, it's imperative to categorize hypernatremia based on the patient's volume status, hypovolemic, euvolemic, and hypervolemic. In hypovolemic hypernatremia, loss of water exceeds the loss of sodium. This can be due to factors like excessive sweating, burns, decreased free water intake, diarrhea, diuretic use, or diabetes insipidus particularly in the absence of a thirst drive. Euvolemic hypernatremia, where total body water decreases but sodium remains unchanged, may be seen in conditions like diabetes insipidus, if the thirst drive is intact, or in cases of hyperventilation. In hypervolemic hypernatremia, both sodium and water content in the body are elevated, but sodium increase is disproportionately higher. This can occur in states of hypercortisolism or hyperaldosteronism. Moving on to the key manifestations, the severity of symptoms in hypernatremia correlates with both the absolute level of sodium and the rate of change in sodium concentration over time. Patients may present with headaches, visual disturbances, confusion, altered mental status, and in severe cases, cerebral edema, seizures, or coma. Diagnosis of hypernatremia is straightforward, confirmed when serum sodium levels are found to be greater than 145 millimoles per liter. However, the real challenge lies in the appropriate management of this condition. The cornerstone of managing hypernatremia is the gradual correction of sodium levels, typically not exceeding 0.5 milliequivalents per liter per hour. It's crucial to treat the underlying etiology and correct the volume status before attempting to rectify the hypernatremia. For severe hypovolemic hypernatremia, administration of 0.9% normal saline is often recommended. In cases of mild asymptomatic hypernatremia, oral free water intake or administration of 5% dextrose in water may be sufficient. One of the most significant complications in the treatment of hypernatremia is cerebral edema, which can occur following rapid overcorrection of sodium levels. This highlights the importance of a meticulous and gradual approach in correcting sodium imbalances. Next, we'll discuss hyponatremia. Hyponatremia defined by a serum sodium concentration below 135 millimoles per liter, is a common electrolyte disturbance in clinical practice. Understanding its causes, signs, symptoms, diagnostics, management, and complications is key to effective patient care. Let's begin by examining the causes of hyponatremia, which can be categorized based on the patient's volume status, pseudohyponatremia, hypovolemic, euvolemic, and hypervolemic. Pseudohyponatremia, where laboratory measurements of sodium are falsely low, can occur in conditions like hyperglycemia or paraproteinemia. In hypovolemic hyponatremia, there is a loss of both sodium and water, but water loss exceeds sodium loss. This can be due to decreased free water intake, insensible losses like sweating, burns, or fever, diarrhea, and the use of thiazide diuretics. Euvolemic hyponatremia occurs when there is a dilutional decrease in serum sodium without significant changes in the body's total water or sodium content. Causes include syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone secretion, 
S-I-A-D-H, hypothyroidism, hypocortisolism, thiazide diuretics, excessive free water intake as seen in psychogenic polydipsia, Legionnaire's disease, and beer drinker's potomania. In hypervolemic hyponatremia, both water and sodium are retained in the body, but water gain is disproportionately higher. This condition is often seen in congestive heart failure, nephrotic syndrome, and cirrhosis. Regarding signs and symptoms, patients with hyponatremia may present with manifestations similar to those of hypernatremia. These can include headaches, visual disturbances, confusion, altered mental status, cerebral edema, seizures, or coma. Diagnostic evaluation of hyponatremia includes measuring serum sodium and serum osmolality alongside urine sodium and urine osmolality. Additional tests such as thyroid-stimulating hormone and cortisol levels may be warranted to identify underlying etiologies. Management of hyponatremia centers on slow and gradual correction of sodium levels, ideally not exceeding 0.5 milliequivalents per liter per hour. It's crucial to address the underlying cause of the condition. In cases where standard therapy fails, ADH antagonists like tolvaptan or conivaptan may be considered. Severely symptomatic patients, particularly those with seizures or coma, may require hypertonic saline. Specific treatments vary based on the underlying cause. For hypovolemic hyponatremia, fluid resuscitation is the mainstay. In cases of SIADH, fluid restriction, possibly supplemented with salt tablets or loop diuretics, is recommended. Hormone replacement is the treatment of choice for hyponatremia secondary to hypothyroidism or hypocortisolism. In patients with CHF, diuresis is often necessary. A critical complication of hyponatremia management is central pontine myelinolysis, a serious neurological condition that can occur following rapid overcorrection of sodium levels. In evaluating hyponatremia, urine studies offer invaluable insights into the underlying pathophysiological processes. Let's discuss how to interpret urine sodium and osmolality results in the context of a patient with low serum sodium. When we consider urine sodium, we are looking at how the kidneys are handling sodium. Elevated urine sodium levels, specifically greater than 20 milliequivalents per liter, suggest that the kidneys are excreting an unusually high amount of sodium. This can happen with the use of thiazide diuretics, which block sodium reabsorption in the distal convoluted tubules leading to increased sodium and water excretion. It can also be seen in conditions such as cerebral salt wasting, where a brain injury leads to excessive renal sodium loss, and in adrenal insufficiency, where the lack of aldosterone results in decreased sodium reabsorption. Decreased urine sodium levels, less than 20 milliequivalents per liter, imply that the body is conserving sodium due to perceived hypovolemia. The kidneys respond by avidly reabsorbing sodium, along with free water, to preserve intravascular volume. This could be due to actual fluid loss or conditions where the effective circulating volume is perceived to be low, such as in heart failure or cirrhosis. Moving on to urine osmolality. When urine osmolality is less than the serum osmolality, it indicates a dilute urine. This is typically seen in conditions of excessive water intake, such as psychogenic polydipsia, where an individual drinks an abnormal amount of water, or in beer drinkers' potomania where consumption of large volumes of beer, which has a low solute content, leads to dilution of urine. Conversely, when urine osmolality is greater than the serum osmolality, it points to the kidneys concentrating urine more than the blood, 
suggesting an inappropriate retention of water. This is a hallmark of the syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone secretion, SIADH, where ADH is secreted excessively or inappropriately, leading to water reabsorption in the renal tubules and diluted serum sodium. Moving on to potassium derangements, beginning with hyperkalemia. Hyperkalemia is generally defined as a serum potassium level greater than 5.5 millimoles per liter. The causes of hyperkalemia can be classified into several broad categories, including decreased excretion of potassium, increased production, shifts of potassium from inside the cells to the bloodstream, and factitious causes. Decreased excretion of potassium is often due to an acute kidney injury where the kidneys are unable to filter potassium effectively. Certain medications, including ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, potassium, sparing diuretics like amylaride and triamterene, as well as mineral or corticoid antagonists such as spironolactone and aplerinone, can also diminish potassium excretion. Moreover, primary adrenal insufficiency impairs the body's ability to regulate potassium. Increased production of potassium can result from the breakdown of muscle tissue, as seen in rhabdomyolysis, or from the destruction of red blood cells, hemolysis. Transcellular shifts describe the movement of potassium out of cells into the bloodstream. This can occur in hypoinsulinemia, as seen in diabetic ketoacidosis, where the lack of insulin prevents potassium from entering cells. Certain medications, including beta blockers and digoxin, can also cause potassium to shift out of cells, as can states of acidosis. Lastly, pseudohyperkalemia is an artifactual elevation of potassium due to the rupture of blood cells in a blood sample, commonly due to a hemolyzed blood sample. The signs and symptoms of hyperkalemia can be nonspecific, but typically include muscle aches, weakness, numbness, paresthesia, and in severe cases, palpitations and arrhythmias due to the effect of potassium on cardiac muscle excitability. Diagnostic confirmation of hyperkalemia involves measuring the serum potassium level. If it's elevated, it's essential to repeat the test to confirm true hyperkalemia and rule out pseudohyperkalemia. An electrocardiogram should be performed to identify characteristic changes associated with hyperkalemia, which include peak T waves, prolonged PR intervals, and in more severe cases, widening of the QRS complex. Management of hyperkalemia should be tailored to the severity of the condition. In mild asymptomatic cases without EKG changes, medications such as furosemide or kyxalate can be used to promote potassium excretion. In severe cases, where symptoms are present and EKG changes are noted, immediate treatment is required to prevent fatal cardiac arrhythmias. Calcium gluconate is often administered first to stabilize the cardiac membranes. To move potassium back into the cells, a combination of insulin plus glucose can be given, sometimes alongside sodium bicarbonate if acidosis is present. To enhance potassium excretion, diuretics such as furosemide may be used for renal excretion, and agents like kyxalate or pityromer can be administered to promote intestinal excretion. In cases where rapid reduction of potassium is necessary and other measures are insufficient, hemodialysis is the definitive treatment. Next, we'll explore hypokalemia. The normal range for serum potassium is typically between 3.5 and 5.0 millimoles per liter, and hypokalemia is defined as a serum potassium level less than 3.3 millimoles per liter. There are several causes for hypokalemia, which can generally be grouped into renal losses, gastrointestinal losses, 
and other causes that affect potassium distribution. Renal losses are a common cause of hypokalemia and can occur with the use of loop and thiazide diuretics, which increase potassium excretion in the urine. Conditions such as hyperaldosteronism, where there is an excess of aldosterone, also lead to increased renal potassium loss. Hypomagnesemia can cause refractory hypokalemia, as low magnesium levels can lead to increased urinary loss of potassium. Genetic disorders like Barter syndrome and states of hypercortisolism can also result in renal potassium wasting. Gastrointestinal losses are another significant source of potassium loss. Diarrhea and laxative abuse can lead to significant potassium loss through the stool. Vomiting or nasogastric suction can cause hypokalemia, often in the setting of metabolic alkalosis, where potassium moves into cells in exchange for hydrogen ions. Intestinal fistulas can also be a source of potassium loss. Other factors that can lead to hypokalemia include the use of beta agonists and the administration of insulin, both of which can drive potassium from the blood into cells. The signs and symptoms of hypokalemia include muscle weakness and cramps, which can progress to paralysis and decrease deep tendon reflexes. Gastrointestinal manifestations include ileus. Cardiac effects are particularly concerning as hypokalemia can lead to palpitations and arrhythmias. Diagnostic evaluation of hypokalemia involves measuring serum potassium levels. Electrocardiogram findings in hypokalemia can include flattening of the T waves and the presence of U waves. The management of hypokalemia centers around the repletion of potassium, which can be administered orally or intravenously, depending on the severity of the deficiency and the patient's ability to tolerate oral intake. It is also essential to recognize that hypokalemia increases the risk of digoxin toxicity for patients on this medication. This is due to the effects of low potassium on cardiac cells, which can exacerbate the actions of digoxin. The next topic in this subsection are calcium disorders. But before reviewing hypercalcemia or hypocalcemia, we'll review calcium metabolism to better understand calcium imbalances. Let's begin by discussing the regulation and homeostasis of calcium, which is a concerted effort involving the kidneys, bones, and the gastrointestinal tract. The hormonal regulation of this process primarily involves parathyroid hormone and vitamin D. Focusing first on the renal aspect, parathyroid hormone has a significant role in the kidneys, particularly in the distal convoluted tubule. Here, it acts to increase the reabsorption of calcium which in turn contributes to maintaining appropriate serum calcium levels. Concurrently, parathyroid hormone also facilitates the excretion of phosphate. This regulation is crucial because the balance of calcium and phosphate is vital for various body functions, including bone health and cellular processes. Moreover, parathyroid hormone is instrumental in activating vitamin D. It stimulates the enzyme 1-alpha-hydroxylase, which is responsible for converting 25-vitamin D into its active form. 1,25-vitamin D, or calcitriol. This active form of vitamin D is essential for calcium homeostasis. Shifting our focus to the skeletal system, the interaction between parathyroid hormone and bone tissue is intricate. Parathyroid hormone stimulates osteoblasts, the cells responsible for bone formation. These osteoblasts, in turn, influence osteoclasts, which are cells that resorb bone. The activation of osteoclasts leads to increased bone resorption resulting in the release of calcium and phosphate into the serum. This mechanism is a critical aspect of maintaining serum calcium levels. Lastly, 
The gastrointestinal tract plays a pivotal role in calcium metabolism, primarily through the actions of vitamin D. Vitamin D enhances the reabsorption of calcium and phosphate in the gastrointestinal tract. This process is vital for ensuring that the body has adequate levels of these minerals for various physiological functions, including bone mineralization and cellular activities. Continuing our exploration of calcium metabolism, we now turn our attention to hypercalcemia. Let's begin by discussing the various causes of hypercalcemia. Endocrinopathies are a major contributing factor. Hyperparathyroidism, often due to a parathyroid adenoma, is the most common cause. Hyperthyroidism also plays a role as it stimulates osteoclasts, leading to increased bone breakdown and subsequent release of calcium. Another significant category is medication-related causes. Thiazide diuretics, hypervitaminosis D, excessive antacid intake leading to milk alkali syndrome, lithium, which increases parathyroid hormone levels, and Fuscarnet are all notable contributors. Malignancies are also a key cause of hypercalcemia. Bone metastasis, multiple myeloma, which releases osteoclast activating factor, squamous cell carcinoma of the lung, producing parathyroid hormone-like peptide, and lymphomas are notable examples. In the case of lymphomas and sarcoidosis, the presence of 1-alpha-hydroxylase in macrophages within granulomas converts 25-vitamin D to its active form, leading to increased calcium levels. Other causes include immobilization and familial hypocalceric hypercalcemia, a genetic condition. Moving on to key manifestations, hypercalcemia affects various systems. In the kidneys, it can lead to nephrolithiasis and nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. Musculoskeletal effects include bone pain, osteoporosis, pathological fractures, arthralgias, muscle weakness, osteitis fibrosis cystica, and gout or pseudogout. Gastrointestinal manifestations range from abdominal pain and constipation to pancreatitis and peptic ulcer disease. As calcium stimulates gastrin secretion, neurologically patients may experience headaches, confusion, and seizures. Cardiovascular effects include hypertension and a shortened QT interval on electrocardiogram. For diagnostics, elevated serum calcium is the primary indicator. Parathyroid hormone levels and serum phosphate are also assessed. Depending on the suspected underlying cause, additional tests may include protein electrophoresis for multiple myeloma, skeletal surveys or bone scans for malignancies, PET-CT imaging for sarcoidosis or lymphoma, and specific tests like cestamibi, scintigraphy, or neck ultrasound for parathyroid adenoma. The management of hypercalcemia involves several strategies. Intravenous fluids are often the first step, followed by the use of osteoclast inhibitors such as bisphosphonates, possibly combined with calcitonin. Glucocorticoids are used for hypercalcemia related to granulomatous diseases or lymphoma, while loop diuretics may be necessary in cases concurrent with heart failure. In severe cases, hemodialysis may be considered as a last resort. Specific treatments depend on the underlying cause and are discussed in more detail in other segments. Lastly, the calcium correction factor is an important aspect in the evaluation of hypercalcemia, especially in patients with hypoalbuminemia. It is calculated using the formula, corrected calcium equals the measured calcium plus 0.8 times 4 minus albumin level. In this next segment, we'll focus on familial hypocalcuric hypercalcemia, a genetic condition relevant to our discussion on calcium metabolism. Familial hypocalcuric hypercalcemia 
is inherited in an autosomal dominant pattern. This means that only one copy of the mutated gene, inherited from either parent, is sufficient to cause the condition. The mutation occurs in the calcium-sensing receptor gene. This receptor plays a crucial role in maintaining calcium homeostasis in the body. The mutated calcium-sensing receptor in FHH leads to decreased sensitivity of the parathyroid glands to serum calcium levels. Under normal circumstances, rising calcium levels in the blood suppress parathyroid hormone secretion. However, in FHH, due to the decreased sensitivity, higher than normal levels of calcium are required to suppress PTH. This results in mild to moderate hypercalcemia, which is typically asymptomatic or associated with minimal symptoms. A key aspect in differentiating familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia from primary hyperparathyroidism lies in urine calcium excretion. In FHH, urine calcium excretion is characteristically decreased. This is in stark contrast to primary hyperparathyroidism, where there is an increased excretion of calcium in urine. The differentiation between these two conditions is critical as it guides the management approach. In FHH, parathyroid surgery, which is a treatment for primary hyperparathyroidism, is usually not indicated due to the genetic nature of the condition and the typically mild clinical presentation. Now let's delve into hypocalcemia. This condition has several causes, which can be broadly classified into different categories based on their underlying mechanisms. Firstly, hypocalcemia can be caused by electrolyte imbalances. One such imbalance is hyperphosphatemia, where high levels of phosphate in the blood lead to the precipitation of calcium, thereby reducing its serum concentration. Another electrolyte imbalance leading to hypocalcemia is hypomagnesemia, characterized by low magnesium levels. This condition can lead to a decreased release of parathyroid hormone and increased resistance to the actions of parathyroid hormone. Hormonal causes of hypocalcemia are also significant. Hypoparathyroidism, often occurring after thyroid surgery, is the most common hormonal cause of low calcium levels in the blood. Another hormonal cause is pseudohypoparathyroidism, a condition in which there is a resistance to the effects of parathyroid hormone at the level of the end organs. Renal issues can also contribute to hypocalcemia. The use of loop diuretics can lead to increased excretion of calcium, resulting in lower levels in the blood. Chronic kidney disease is another renal cause of hypocalcemia as this condition impairs the kidney's ability to convert 25-vitamin D to its active form, 1,25-vitamin D. Other causes of hypocalcemia include acute pancreatitis, which can lead to the condition secondary to saponification. DiGeorge syndrome, a congenital disorder characterized by the absence of parathyroid glands, is another cause. Massive blood transfusions can lead to hypocalcemia as well as the citrate used in stored blood products can chelate calcium. Finally, the administration of calcitonin, a hormone known to lower calcium levels in the blood, can also cause hypocalcemia. The symptoms of hypocalcemia are predominantly neuromuscular and neurological. Neuromuscular symptoms include perioral numbness and tingling, the presence of Cholstek sign, characterized by facial nerve paresthesias, and Trousseau sign, which involves carpopedal spasms upon the inflation of a blood pressure cuff. Neurological symptoms can include confusion, altered mental status, seizures, and in some cases the calcification of basal ganglia. Cardiovascular manifestations of hypocalcemia are also notable, particularly the prolonged QT interval observed on an electrocardiogram.
Diagnosis of hypocalcemia involves confirming low levels of serum calcium, typically below 8.5 milligrams per deciliter. It is important to measure parathyroid hormone and vitamin D levels to understand the underlying cause. Additionally, assessing albumin levels or directly measuring ionized calcium is crucial to ensure that the diagnosis of hypocalcemia is accurate. Managing hypocalcemia typically involves the repletion of calcium, which can be administered either intravenously or orally. The choice of route depends on the severity of the condition and the patient's overall clinical status. In this next segment, we'll discuss hypermagnesemia. Hypermagnesemia typically occurs due to a few key causes. One common cause is iatrogenic, which means it results from medical treatment. This can happen, for example, when magnesium is infused to treat specific conditions like torsades de pointes, a type of life-threatening heart rhythm, or to manage preeclampsia or eclampsia, which are complications of pregnancy. Another cause of hypermagnesemia is chronic kidney disease. In this condition, the kidney's ability to excrete magnesium is compromised, leading to its accumulation in the blood. Additionally, the use of magnesium-containing enemas or laxatives, especially in excess, can lead to hypermagnesemia. The signs and symptoms of hypermagnesemia can vary depending on the severity of the condition. Patients may experience nausea and headache. Neuromuscular manifestations include decreased deep tendon reflexes and muscle paralysis. In severe cases, hypermagnesemia can lead to respiratory complications such as apnea, pulmonary edema, and even respiratory failure. Cardiovascular effects are also significant, with arrhythmias and cardiac arrest being potential severe outcomes. Diagnosing hypermagnesemia involves measuring the serum magnesium level. This straightforward test can confirm the diagnosis and help in assessing the severity of the condition. Management of hypermagnesemia is tailored based on the severity and underlying cause. Intravenous fluids combined with furosemide, a loop diuretic, are often used to enhance the excretion of magnesium. In severe cases, especially when neuromuscular or cardiac manifestations are present, IV calcium is administered. Calcium can counteract the effects of magnesium on neuromuscular and cardiac function, providing a rapid and effective treatment. Now let's turn our attention to hypomagnesemia. Hypomagnesemia can arise from various causes. Certain medications like Foscarnet and Amphotericin B can lead to decreased magnesium levels. Immunosuppressive medication, such as cyclosporine and diuretics like loop and thiazide diuretics, are also known to contribute to hypomagnesemia. Additionally, conditions like alcoholism and malnutrition can result in low magnesium levels due to inadequate intake or absorption. Gastrointestinal issues such as diarrhea and malabsorption syndromes can also lead to a loss of magnesium. The signs and symptoms of hypomagnesemia are varied and can affect multiple systems in the body. Patients may experience muscle aches and cramps, which are common with electrolyte imbalances. Neurological symptoms like paresthesia, tetany, and hyperreflexia are also common. In more severe cases, patients can experience seizures. Cardiovascular manifestations include arrhythmias, which can be life-threatening. The diagnostic approach to hypomagnesemia involves measuring serum magnesium levels. Given that magnesium levels can impact other electrolytes, it is also important to check calcium, phosphorus, and potassium levels. This is because hypomagnesemia can increase the risk of hypocalcemia, hypophosphatemia, and hypokalemia. The management of hypomagnesemia primarily involves magnesium replacement. This can be done orally or intravenously, depending on the severity of the magnesium deficiency 
and the patient's overall clinical status. The choice of route and dosage requires careful consideration of the patient's renal function and the presence of other electrolyte abnormalities. In this next section, we'll explore phosphate metabolism, a critical aspect of physiological homeostasis, and then delve into hyperphosphatemia. Phosphate metabolism is intricately regulated by the kidneys, bones, and gastrointestinal tract. A key player in this regulation is vitamin D, which enhances the reabsorption of both calcium and phosphorus from the gastrointestinal tract. Parathyroid hormone, another crucial regulator, plays a dual role in phosphate metabolism. It stimulates osteoclasts to induce bone resorption, which releases phosphate from the bones. At the same time, parathyroid hormone promotes the excretion of phosphate in the urine. Hyperphosphatemia refers to abnormally high levels of phosphate in the blood. Various factors can lead to this condition. Chronic kidney disease is a primary cause, where there is secondary hyperparathyroidism and a decreased ability to excrete excess phosphate. Pseudohypoparathyroidism and hypoparathyroidism can also contribute to hyperphosphatemia. Other causes include hypervitaminosis D, conditions like rhabdomyolysis and tumor lesis syndrome, which involve the release of intracellular phosphate and the use of medications such as Foscarnet. Diagnosing hyperphosphatemia involves measuring serum phosphate levels. It is also important to measure serum calcium levels, as an excess of phosphate can bind to calcium, leading to hypocalcemia. Assessing parathyroid hormone levels is also crucial, especially to understand if hypocalcemia is contributing to secondary hyperparathyroidism. The management of hyperphosphatemia includes several strategies. Dietary restrictions to reduce phosphate intake are often recommended. The use of phosphate binders, such as sevolimer and lanthanum, is a common approach to reduce the absorption of phosphate from the gastrointestinal tract. Antacids containing calcium carbonate or calcium acetate can also bind phosphate in the gut and reduce its absorption. Now let's discuss hypophosphatemia. Hypophosphatemia can result from several causes. One significant cause is primary hyperparathyroidism, where increased parathyroid hormone levels lead to decreased phosphate reabsorption in the kidneys. Refeeding syndrome is another cause, characterized by the rapid depletion of extracellular phosphorus due to increased intracellular uptake for adenosine triphosphate synthesis, particularly in the context of malnutrition and subsequent nutritional rehabilitation. Vitamin D deficiency can also lead to hypophosphatemia, as vitamin D is essential for phosphate absorption in the gastrointestinal tract. The use of phosphate binders and certain medications like cyclosporine, as well as conditions like milk alkali syndrome, can reduce phosphate levels. Additionally, malabsorption syndromes and alcohol abuse can contribute to lower phosphate levels due to inadequate intake or absorption. The key manifestations of hypophosphatemia are varied and can affect multiple body systems. Patients may experience muscle weakness, myalgias, and in severe cases, rhabdomyolysis and osteomalacia. Neurological symptoms can include numbness, paresthesias, and confusion. Cardiovascular manifestations such as arrhythmias and cardiomyopathy can occur. Hemolysis and red blood cell or white blood cell dysfunction are also potential complications. Diagnosing hypophosphatemia involves measuring serum phosphate levels. This straightforward test can confirm the diagnosis and help assess the severity of the condition. The management of hypophosphatemia primarily involves phosphate repletion. This can be done orally or intravenously. Depending on the severity of the deficiency, 
and the patient's overall clinical status. The choice of route and dosage requires careful consideration of the patient's renal function and the presence of other electrolyte abnormalities.